0: Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Reweal as he continues his sermon series, Grace Upon Grace. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn to John chapter 1 this morning. Kirk put together a uh, quick highlight video there from our youth retreat from last weekend. This is, the, this is one of the greatest Sundays of the year where I can get away with wearing a t-shirt in the pulpit to preach, to celebrate our uh, our youth retreat. Yeah, kiddos, if you're participating in children's church, you guys are dismissed at this time. We're gonna be in John 1 and look at the first 18 verses. And just a really quick thank you to so many families and people that came together to um, uh, help out with the youth retreat and the volunteers and just the supervision there was uh, incredible the Biggs, shoes shoops rachel wessel always helps out in the youth down there uh, the maddens of course nate taught for the uh, had four really great sessions on qualified is what they called it and uh, and the jones family as well kyle and vanessa uh, everybody it takes a lot of hands and and people to put on these retreats and to do this kind of stuff so all of those are volunteers that I just named and they're one of the great reasons why our family ministries do what we do at TBC. Uh, So if you're looking for a church family and if you're uh, just wondering if Tulsa Bible Church is the place for you, just know that we are a a church that really emphasizes and is dedicated to families and to relationships. And we wanna have discipleship happening uh, across the aisle, multi-generations, from kids in the nursery all the way through high school and into the adult ministries. Uh, we have a lot of really great stuff going on, and so thank you guys for doing that. Also, before I get started, the, uh, in the foyer you'll find new prayer calendars for September. Uh, today we're actually praying through the Lord's Prayer. It's found in Matthew chapter six, starts in verse nine. Uh, I encourage you to grab one of our prayer calendars, take one of those with you as you go, just fold it up and keep it in your Bible as we often do, and, um, and just pray for the scriptures for that day. And thanks, for, thanks so much for doing that. As uh, so you guys are turning to John chapter one, I hope you found it by now. Let me pray for us, and we'll look at God's Word here. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace to us. So thank you for our families here at Tulsa Bible Church, uh, for those who actively participate in our ministries on a normal basis, for those we get to reach and, and engage in ministry with that might not be a part of our our weekly ministries here, but we get a chance to minister to them as well. Um, Lord, we thank you for families. We thank you for fathers, godly fathers and mothers. We thank you for grandparents and the generations even. Uh, Many families have multiple generations in this church. We're so grateful for each and and every one of them. I pray that you would uh, give us a heart to disciple our kids, for the dads to be disciple makers in the homes, for moms uh, lovingly come alongside and raise godly, godly children. And um, for those of us who have had broken homes and um, relationships that are, are torn and difficult, God, I pray that here at TBC they'll find family, uh, relationships that are, that are deeper than bloodlines, that go to a spiritual bloodline. We thank you for the unity that we have through the cross because of what you've done for us on, on Calvary. Um, Lord, to lift up our, our missionaries for this week, John and Jan Crowley. I pray that you'd be with them as they're retired here in Oklahoma, continue to take care of them and shepherd them, uh, use them where they're involved in ministries here. We lift up our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now and the experience of what they're going through. Just give them strength and courage and confidence and a strong trust in who you are and a dedication to your goodness and your love for them, for those refugees that are, are coming here on our soil and even in Tulsa. We pray that we might be a refuge and a safe place for them. Mm-hmm. We pray that the gospel would be made clear in their sight and that their hearts might be softened to it. And God, as we finish up our, our series on grace this morning, I just I pray that uh, the grace of God will be something that not only we, we learn about and hear about on Sundays, but something that we live in a very real way in our marriages, our relationships, our friendships that the grace of God would continue to be a motivating factor for who we are because of who you are. And we pray all this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Chuck Swindoll talks about a, a story in his really great book called Grace Awakening of Thomas Jefferson. And the story goes that Thomas Jefferson had a bunch of traveling companions that were going across the country on horseback, And they came to a spot, a a huge, massive river that they finally had to ford and go across. There was supposed to be a footbridge that was gonna lead them across this massive river, but recently there was a downpour, heavy rainfall, that washed out the bridge entirely. And so this company of, of guys, mainly, was going to have to ford this river on horseback, just fight the current, figure out how to get across it. And it was going to be something that was was very dangerous and possibly led to a loss of life if not handled in the right way. And so they decided one by one they were going to go across this river and, and get to the other side. And sure enough, with some hesitation and trepidation, the first guy gets on his horse and he goes across, he makes it safely, followed by the second guy and even the third guy. And what they didn't realize at the time was that there was a passerby that was watching all of this happen. He also wanted to get to the other side of the river. And by the time Thomas Jefferson got up, he came up to him, not realizing who he was, and said, excuse me, sir, would you mind if I jump on the back of your horse with you as you go across the river? I'd like to get across as well. And, and Thomas Jefferson extended a hand down and brought him up on his horse. They forded across together and they made it safely to the other side. By the time they got to the other side, the whole company of guys immediately asked this passerby, said, how did you know to ask the current president of the United States to get on his horse instead of anybody else that was in the party? And it was really interesting. The guy's reply, said and he said this, he said, looking at what you guys were trying to accomplish, I knew this was a difficult task. And all the faces of everybody else in the company was a no face. But when I looked at the face of Thomas Jefferson, I got a yes. And so I mounted up and asked to be on his horse instead. The reason why I want to tell you this story and the, the illustration that Swindoll used in this chapter of his book is because there's just, there's some people in life, I think all of us know, that have a, a yes face when it comes to the grace of God. There's some people whose lives have been so dramatically transformed by the miraculous grace of God that you can just see it on them can experience and even feel it in many ways. Instead of being critical, uh, gracious people are courageous. Instead of being overly negative, they are typically overly positive. Instead of being judgmental, gracious Christians are joyful. And when I look through the Gospels, I believe that the word that best describes the life and the ministry of Jesus is that he was a man who was filled with the grace of God. His relationships, his demeanor, everything about him breathed grace. And you might be surprised to know that throughout all of the Gospels, Jesus never specifically uses the word grace. The Greek word in the New Testament is, happens all of the time in Paul's writings, never comes out of the mouth of Jesus. But he taught it. And most equally, he, he lived it in his relationships and everybody he came in contact with. Furthermore, the Bible never gives us one statement or a definition of the word grace. We're left with examples, stories of lives that have been transformed by the grace of God. A woman caught in adultery, Mephibosheth, perhaps the the woman at the well. Over time, grace has come to be just story and story and testimony after testimony of lives that have been drastically transformed by the condescending favor of God. And originally, the Hebrew word for grace meant to bend or to stoop. The idea or the image was a a person in in power, a superior, getting off or, or doing off of his throne, stepping aside from his high place of authority and stooping down to somebody who didn't deserve it, going the extra step to engage with somebody that was beneath him. Again, over time it came to mean condescending favor. The late pastor, Donald Barnhouse, says this about the grace of God, I think it's, it's worth mentioning. He says, love that goes upward is worship, love that goes outward is affection, love that stoops is grace. To show grace is to show favor or kindness to one who doesn't deserve it and never can earn it. And of all the characteristics that we could use to describe our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I think grace is one of the most powerful. This morning, I wanna finish our sermon series. We've entitled this Grace Upon Grace by looking upon Jesus, who he was, and how he's introduced in the Gospel of John. And before we do that, I wanna talk just a little bit about the context of, of these first 18 verses. Of every book in the New Testament, the one that has the most material written on it, literature, commentaries, descriptions, interpretations of what's happening, the Gospel of John is the one that has the most written on it of any other book. And this prologue has so much that has been written about it. There's so much here that you could dive into. We could spend just months and months upon just these 18 verses. Many suggest that the prologue is actually poetry when you read it, there's very short, kind of pithy, very memorable statements. Even the transitions in verses one through 18 are, are very clean, and it's a great structure to it. You've got parallelisms, short structure, short phase, phrases that really stick out, and mirrored structures. So what's said at the beginning is often captured again at the end, and you get all the material in between. John 1, 1 through 18 is rhythmical. There's light, there's life, there's the world, there's darkness. Um, Some people have have even suggested that the whole thing is one giant chiasm, mirrored structure. So in in verses one and two, you have a lot about uh, God creating. And then we get to verse 18 and again we see God being explained through the person of Jesus. We might say that verse 3 is parallel to verse 17 when it talks about how the things were made, and then how grace and truth were revealed through Jesus. If it is a giant chiasm, if it is just one huge structure, verses one through eighteen, right in the middle you'd find chapter one, verse twelve, at the end of verse twelve, and it reads this way. To all those who did not receive or who did receive him, excuse me, he became who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That would have been right in the middle verse of a huge, one huge chiastic structure. Whatever the case might be, verses one through 18 are a foyer to the mansion of the Gospel of John. All of the great themes that you're gonna see throughout the rest of the book are introduced right here as we're welcomed into this Gospel. We see a lot about the pre-existence of the Son of God. It's captured again in John chapter 17, verse five, in the prayer of Jesus for God's glory. Life is introduced here in chapter one, you see that again in chapter five, verse 26, and him was the light of life. Light in the concept that Jesus is the light of the world, captured right here in chapter one and also in chapter eight, and of course, truth, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is pictured again in, in chapter 17. D.A. Carson says this about the prologue of of John chapter one. The prologue summarizes how the Son of God was sent into the world to become the Jesus of history so that the glory and grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed to the readers. In other words, John's gospel reveals God's glory and his grace, specifically in the person of Jesus. And the very first element of grace that you see in John chapter 1 is grace in creation. John chapter 1, 1 through 5 here, grace in creation. Look down at verse 1 of your text. I'm read just the first five verses. John writes, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Immediately, John begins with this phrase, in the beginning. And that reminds us of Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there's further references to what is made, even in this account in John that reflects that passage back in Genesis chapter one. It talks about light and darkness in Genesis one, it talks about light and darkness here in John one. It solidifies that creation is being reflected. And John is very unique among the gospels in this. If you go back and you compared some of the other gospels, Matthew begins with two covenants. Talks about the promise that was given to Abraham and to David. When Matthew begins his gospel, he starts with Israel, the history of the nation. When John begins his gospel, he starts with the very beginning. Mark, when he begins his gospel, hear the voice of John the Baptist. Isaiah chapter 40 is cross-referenced to introduce the message of Jesus and the coming of the king. But for John, the beginning goes even further back. It's absolute. When John talks about in the beginning, he talks about the beginning of all things, the beginning of the universe that there was nothing before this that happened in the beginning. And here's what's interesting, because John almost immediately goes from the beginning of creation to the beginning of the incarnation in Jesus taking on flesh and, and God coming down to the earth, and then he goes to new creation. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of a husband's decision, not of our will, but born of God's will. And by linking the Old Testament texts on creation to the New Testament texts of Jesus creating us new in Him, we are tapping into something that is so important for us to see. It's the power of God from the very beginning. In the very beginning, the power of God existed by speaking things into existence. Now you're seeing the power of God through Jesus and recreating things into his image, and bringing people into his family. And let me just stop and ask this question, because a lot of us, and I'll be the first one to tell you up on the stage, have struggles with sin. A lot of us struggle with things that we, we can't seem to break patterns in cycles. We can't seem to get away from this thing that we do, But if it's true that the power that was existed in the very beginning when God created the world, world and everything in it simply by speaking it into existence, that same power is seen through Jesus in making us his new creation, then all of the things that we struggle with, there is no power that is more powerful than the power of God over our lives as a new creation. Those sins that we struggle with have no ability to overcome the new power that is in us through Jesus. John starts with this power. He brings us into this power when we believe in him and enter into his family, and we have this power as his new creation. John tells us that the, the Son of God is eternal in this passage. There is never a time that the Son was not, he has eternally existed. As evangelical believers, we we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, that God has eternally existed as three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one essence. We deny the heretical teaching of Arianism. That would say that there was a time when the Son of God was not. The Son of God has always been and always will be. He is the eternal Son of God. We believe in the only Son of God. We believe in the Father, the Almighty the maker of heaven and earth. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, He is light from light. He is true God from true God. Begotten, not made. John has given us deep theology. He is giving us power to overcome sin in our lives with this prologue. And you guys see the, uh, I'm gonna date myself a little bit here. you seen Man of Steel movie about Superman, 2013, they recreated it. It was, uh, I, like, I like the new versions. Have you guys seen the old versions of Superman? Is it Christopher Reeves, is it? The new Superman's just like, I, I don't know, he just looks a little stronger. Imagine Superman just being like that instead, of course. Christopher Reeves has proven himself to be a pretty strong guy going through what he's gone through. But there's a scene in the movie, in the new one, where Superman turns himself into the US military. And he wants, to, uh, he wants to talk to Lois Lane. And so they put him into this interrogation room. You remember it? And Lois Lane actually says the name Superman by looking at the S that's on his chest. He th- she thinks the S stands for S, the letter S, Superman. But Superman comes along and he says, no, it's, that's, that's not what the S stands for at all. You remember what he said? He said, where I'm from, this isn't the letter S. Where I'm from, this is the the symbol for hope. He's taking a concept, a worldly concept, a letter that we all are familiar with, he's giving it a new meaning and a fresh meaning, something that wasn't there before to understand it. And the same thing happens as, as John introduces something that the world knew really well, See, John says this, in the beginning was the word, and the Greek word there is logos. And that was something that the philosophers of the Greco-Roman period in that time, they knew extremely well. The early Greek philosophers thought the logos, or the logos, was the rational principle by which everything exists. There was no other god other than the logos. It was the thing that held everything together. Everything existed and sprung out of this principle or this idea of a divine Logos. Or people thought that the Logos refers to to reason, to the human intellect, maybe even science. In fact, some of the uh, minor translations that you might read translate the word Logos here as reason instead of word. When John wrote the first century Greco-Roman world, He was talking about a letter S, and he was giving it new meaning. He was taking the logos, that the Greek philosophers understood and knew well, that they believed it was a principle, human rationality, the thing that held all of life together, maybe even a power. John comes along and says, the logos is a person. And if you're going to tap into the thing that holds all things together, the thing that gives us reason, this thing that separates humanity from everything else on God's creation, you're gonna tap into a personal relationship with the Word, the one who is the divine Logos. The Word, Logos, was God. And these passages remind us of, of Psalm 33, verse six. By the Word of the Lord, the Logos, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Or even Genesis one, verse three. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light speaking things through his word into existence. D.A. Carson has an awesome commentary on the Gospel of John, and here's what he says. God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, in his revelation, and in salvation. God's word in the Old Testament The thing that John is picking up here in the prologue is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. The shocking element is that the Almighty One above created, he gave us all of this, all of this grace in creation for us and ultimately for his glory. And so we see the grace of God in creation right here at the beginning of of the Gospel of John. Number two, in your outline number two, this morning, is grace in salvation. Grace in creation, grace, grace now in salvation. Skip down to verse nine in your text. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, we think a a reference to the Jewish people there. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Uh, Thomas Aquinas has a a statement, goes something like this. It is the task of the philosopher to make distinctions. The philosopher's job is to make distinctions of things. And that statement in and of itself is not highly valued, especially by a a postmodern generation. It's frowned upon, in fact. Uh, Typically, postmoderns are are okay with the phrase, this is true, as long as it's not followed by another phrase, and therefore, this is false. They don't want any absolute truth whatsoever. Postmoderns believe that all truth is relative, that there is no absolute truth. They never ask the next question, of course, which is an easy question, is, is all truth being relative and absolute truth that you want me to believe, or not? Postmoderns tend to be walking contradictions, and the way that you can catch them on truth and reality is just to ask them to look down and see if their are flies down. If it is, it's real, it's true, and they gotta respond to it. Philosophers define truth in, in three different ways, and I think this is important. There's different ways that you can look in truth, at truth, and examine it, both biblically and uh, philosophically. But the first way philosophers look at truth is that truth, they would say, is that which corresponds to reality. Uh, I could tell you that the, the best entrance, or the, the, the best exit for this room, is in the back middle. And that corresponds to reality. So the statement is true. If you're gonna exit the room, you need a good one to go to. You're gonna to go to the back and to the middle of this room. Secondly, they say that truth is that which matches its object. And what you mean by that is, is typically if two people go to the doctor for a medicine, they're taking the same medicine, one person typically needs more than the other because the truth of that situation is, is matching what's there. It's matching its object. Or truth is simply telling like it is. Uh, when John uses the word truth in this passage, he means that which is real or genuine. He's tapping into the first of, the way that, of these three ways that we look at truth. And he characteristically applies truth in the gospel of, Lot, of, of John to light, to worshipers. Remember, true worshipers worship the Lord in spirit and truth. He talks about truth in terms of the bread from heaven coming down. And he also talks about truth in terms of the vine. There is a true vine in the branches. Uh, Thus, his contrast is not only to display that which is true, but also to label that which is false or not real or maybe even not genuine, ingenuine. Um, But truth also has a context of, of meaning earlier and maybe even provisional. So we would say with the examples in the Gospel of John, uh, manna in the wilderness was real, it was true. It fell for the Israelites, they ate it, they were sustained by it. But Jesus says that he is the true manna, means that he is before that manna, he is provisional just like that manna, and he is after. Everything about Jesus as the true bread from heaven reveals that the manna was just given to point to him, to the reality of which it expressed. Uh, Light in creation is real, but Jesus calls himself the true light, the genuine light, the light that is before and after, and the light that is pointed to even in the light of creation. True light came into the world through Christ. True light is the light of Christ and the miracle of the incarnation. It's interesting that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And even in this passage, how we understand truth according to our world and how the world sees it. Now if you simply read, I want you to skip down and and look in your text. If you simply read verses 10 and 11, this would be a pretty grim picture of the message and the response to the gospel through Jesus. Uh, He was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, to the Jewish people, the Israelites, his own people did not receive him. Very grim depiction of the life and ministry of Jesus, and, and in many ways, that's, that is his ministry. His own people rejected him, he died on a cross. Uh, but it's all softened by verses 12 and 13. But to all who would receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. These verses are reflecting, verses 12 and 13, are reflecting the doctrine of the new birth. You might say regeneration based on faith in Christ. Uh, New birth for the Christian is possible, not through a physical bloodline, but through a spiritual bloodline, through Christ. It is not like natural birth into the world, it is spiritual birth through Christ into his family. It is not through our worldly desires, it's through the will of God. And the gospel is is because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross by shedding his blood for us on Calvary, we can be born again. We can have a new life in Christ simply by trusting in Him and placing our faith in Him. When we do that, we are given into a new family. He places us into a divine, a heavenly, eternal family. Why? Because we we are seeing grace in creation through Jesus and we are seeing grace in salvation through Jesus. He secured that for us, not based on what we do, but based on what He has done for us in the doctrine of of the new birth in Christ. Number three in your outline, grace in creation, grace in in salvation. Number three, grace in revelation. Look down at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, speaking to the Baptist here, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom it was said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That phrase, you might make a special mention of it. We'll come to it in just a second. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Some of your translations have a contrast there between Moses and Jesus. There's Most of your translations now don't interpret verse 17 with a contrast. The law came through Moses, and there was still grace there. Grace and truth came through Jesus. He's full of grace just as well, in a new way. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known, or maybe even explained him. If it wasn't clear enough that Jesus is from God from the first few verses that we read in John 1, verse 14 begins to lift the fog. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We refer to this as the supreme, specific, special revelation of God. On the one hand, rationalism won't always lead you to God because the gospel is irrational many times over. On the, other, irrational, on the other hand, irrational mysticism won't lead you to God either. It's not just grabbing for what's out there. He's not just the spiritual force that we can come in contact with. Verse 14 says this very specifically. The Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelled among us. And our English translations do not do this justice. If you read this in the Greek text, what you would read is something, something more like this. The Word became flesh and he tabernacled among us, or he pitched his tent among us and he lived with us. When you see that word dwelled or tabernacled, what do you immediately think of in the Old Testament? You think of the tabernacle of of God with the people of Israel, the presence of God that was specially manifested among his people. Wherever they went, they set up the tabernacle to manifest the presence of God. Jesus was the presence of God that spread his tent among humanity. He lived with us. He dwelled with us. Exodus 29, verse 45 and 46 talks about this in the Old Testament where Jesus fulfills it. I will dwell among the people of Israel, God says. I will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell with them. I am the Lord their God. Jesus dwelled with us so that we might know that he is the Lord, our God. God manifested himself most clearly when he came to the earth, and he dwelled with humanity through the person of Jesus Christ. And this person is described as being full of grace and truth. Perhaps Jesus is being described as being full of grace and truth because truth was the message he taught, and grace was the life that he lived. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called the the paradox of truth and grace. And here's what he says about the early apostles. Truth was the food they ate and the message they spoke. Grace was the air they breathed and the life they lived. And how great it would be if truth and grace were the meals that we ate ate on a normal basis in the life that we lived and manifested in our bodies. Truth and grace is a description of a life in balance, a spiritual life that has balance to it that if we are void of truth but we have grace, it is not the complete picture. If we don't have grace but we have truth, we are not in balance in the Christian life. Martin Luther said that the devil doesn't care which side of the horse we fall off as long as we don't stay in the saddle. For the Christian, we should ride the horse with one foot in the stirrup of grace and one foot in the stirrup of truth. Both things come together to reflect the life of Christ that he has given us. And we have all received, verse 17 goes on to say, grace upon grace. Some of your translations are gonna be a little different here. The King James translation says it this way, grace for grace. The New Living translation says, one gracious blessing after another. The NIV says grace in the place of grace already given. The Holman Christian Bible says, grace upon grace from his fullness. And all of it depends on how you translate this little tiny preposition, upon. Grace upon grace, it's the the Greek word anti, or anti, is how you'd normally translate this. Um, there's, There's a lot of different ways that you can understand it. We either look at this preposition and we say this. Grace upon grace means this. There was grace in the Old Testament covenant that we received through Moses as he was the mediator of the Old Testament and the law. And that grace has been replaced by grace in the New Covenant through Christ. Or we might say that Jesus was reflected as the one who gave us grace on top of grace. On top of grace. There's an abundance of grace. Thirdly, we might say that grace here is depicted as corresponding to grace, grace that corresponds to grace through Christ, somewhat redundant, but for emphasis. You could see what John would wanna do with that. By far the most common interpretation is, is the second option. Most people would say that we should read John 1:17 as grace upon grace, reflecting the abundant grace of God that we are given through Christ. Um, Carson would say that in his commentary, One grace replaces another grace. Of course, we see that in the incarnation. The grace of God at the beginning of creation was there. The grace of God continues its grace abundantly through the incarnation of Jesus after the grace of creation. You see grace through John the Baptist testifying of the grace that would come through Christ. You see grace in the law that begins to be associated and fulfilled with grace through Jesus. Whatever the way we look at this phrase and however we understand it, the point is this. Through Jesus and as Christians in his family, here's what we can expect to receive, grace upon grace upon grace, an abundance of grace. There is no way that we will ever outlast the abundant, merciful, and the amazing grace of God. When we get one aspect of God's grace, he comes with another aspect that we never knew we needed in the first place. When we're struggling with sin, the same grace that he showed us when we became believers, he shows us again and again as we overcome and struggle with these sins in our lives. When we mess up relationships, when we say things that we shouldn't say to other people, when we treat superiors and even lose a job, perhaps God continues to show us grace and gives us chance after chance. He is the God of second chances because he is the God of grace upon grace upon grace. And apart from that grace, none of us have a foot to stand on. All of us, at the end of the day, if our marriages survive. I was told there's an anniversary in the back row here, 60 some odd years today. Diane, this is, Browns, this is your parents? i 62 years, I don't see any resemblance between you and your mom, man, this is amazing. So 62 years later, the brand, what's your maiden name? Piper. Piper? Piter. The Piter's are gonna, are gonna tell everybody in this room the reason that they have stayed together in their marriage is not because they got some magic formula and have done something in their marriage day by day and week by week to sustain them. The only reason why they're still together today is because the grace of God upon them. The only reason that all of us are here and have another breath to breathe is because God is showing his grace to us. The only reason that you're gonna raise godly kids and another family's gonna have a prodigal that never comes back to him is because of God's grace. None of us are gonna be able to look back on our life and say, you know what? My life turned out the way that it turned out because I was special and I did something significant. All of us are gonna have to come to the conclusion and realize that we are what we are because of the grace of God and for no other reason. And all of that should diminish the comparisons, the critical nature, and the judgment that we have on other people. There is no superiority in the body of Christ that overcomes or is needed over and above the grace of God. We are who we are because of God's grace. We stand where we stand because God has been gracious to us. We have life in Christ because we have experienced the grace of God through Jesus. And it is a matchless grace upon grace. Let's talk about a few things and apply this passage in John chapter one. Number one. People looked upon Jesus and they see what God is like. People should look upon us as Christians and they should see what Jesus is like. When Jesus walked this earth in and around Jerusalem near the first century time frame, they looked upon Jesus and they saw exactly what God was like. When people look into our lives, they should see exactly what Jesus is like. John 1, verse 18, is we didn't take too much time to explain it here, but it says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known, or he has explained him. Later on in John chapter 14, we're gonna read Philip, a story about Philip, he's gonna come up to Jesus and he's gonna say, show us the Father. You remember what Jesus said? He said to Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father, I and the Father are one. Just as Jesus displayed what the Father is like, Christians should display what Christ is like. In the context that means that we should be people who speak the truth and show grace in our lives. Over and abundantly are shadowed everything we say and do with the grace of God that we have experienced through Jesus. Sometimes I think Christians get this backward. Instead of speaking the truth in love and living in grace, we are quick to judge and we love legalism. In the life of Christ, Jesus was the most stern against the most religious, the power brokers of the day. He was the most gracious to the broken, the destitute, and the people who were unworthy and knew that they were unworthy, abundantly showing them the grace of God through Jesus. Christians, people should see our lives and they should see Jesus. They should see truth and they should see grace. Number two, gracious Christians spend less time and energy critical and concerned of others' choices. A grace-filled Christian will spend less time and energy being a critical person and concerned about other people's choices. God did not save us and give us the grace of God in this badge to make us certified fruit inspectors. All of us have enough personal struggles in our own lives to worry about the day-to-day decisions that we fall into and that we have to wrestle with. Don't fall into this temptation to peer into people's refrigerators and all all of a sudden become the celestial police officer. You're walking with the Lord based on this decision, or you're walking with the Lord based on that. God didn't show us the grace of Christ so that we could be critical. God shows us the grace of Christ so that we can be encouraging, uplifting, and spread the grace in life with other people instead. Swindoll says gracious people are increasingly less petty. Gracious people are increasingly less petty. Gracious Christians are more tolerant, and they are less judgmental. Sometimes we expect unbelievers to live like saints and saints to live like monks, and that is not the depiction of reality in life or that we see in Scripture. Beware of making everything about behavior modification and failing to get to the heart transformation. Beware of looking on the outside and failing to get to the inside. Beware of the little things that we're so concerned about at times that we never get to the root and the heart issues of life in Christ. The grace of God is a a concept that we will never ever expire. Every Sunday for the rest of my ministry here at TBC, you will hear something of the grace of God because that's how important it is for our lives. And you see grace nowhere depicted like it is on the cross of Calvary. Grace is God giving to us something that we could not give to ourselves. Life in Him, eternal life. None of us earn it. None of us could ever deserve it. None of us are worthy of the grace of God. Ephesians says this, in Jesus, the grace of God is lavished upon us. It is poured out upon us in abundance. John's way of saying it is this, through Jesus Christ, we have grace upon grace upon grace. I'm going to pray in a second. I've asked the worship team to come up here and want you guys to come up. And we're gonna finish with a, a song again this week about the amazing grace of God. Uh, but before these guys come up, uh, let me pray. And just remember too, after the service here, uh, we'll have some elders, Travis Jones will be up here. If you wanna pray with one of our elders, if you're going through a, a tough time in life, you wanna to talk to somebody about that. If you've heard the message of the grace of God differently than you've heard it before, Uh, and you want to talk to one of us about that, we're up here for you. Come find us underneath the screen here or stage left on my side, and and we'd love to talk to you. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, we all stand unworthy for your grace. As people who have sinned against you, who have acted in ways that fall short of the glory of God, none of us deserve anything from you. And yet, even though it cost you your life and your son, your only son, you have shown grace most clearly through the cross of Calvary. We thank you for the grace that we've received when we become believers. We thank you for the grace that we receive on a daily basis when we continue to sin against you. I pray that we would be those who confess and repent of those sins, that we might see over and over again the abundant grace of God. Lord, I pray that our church here will never, ever exhaust, we would never get over the amazing grace that we have through you. We pray that our lives would reflect your grace to those who so desperately need it and to our own hearts who are continually transformed by it. Father, we thank you for this grace through Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.